This is Here It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton. In the Dakotas and in the United States, cities share a common feature, railroad tracks. Most of North Dakota settled along the rails that linked those towns to markets and other cities. And cities that also featured rivers like Fargo or Bismarck had for a time riverboats to move passengers and, and commerce. Well, Mark Joy is a professor of history at Jamestown College where he chairs the Department of History and Political Science. This evening he will be the featured lecturer for the Barnes County Historical Society Lecture Series. And he joins us now. Thank you. Yes, it's good to talk to you. Mark, uh, you grew up in a railroad family. Yes, um, my father was an engineer for the Chicago Great Western Railroad. He went to work for the railroad uh, toward the end of the Depression, I believe. And um, then uh, in the 1960s, the uh, Chicago Great Western was merged into the Chicago Northwestern. And my father and my mom's brother went to work at the same time and... uh, they were among the last firemen promoted to engineer on steam engines on that <laughs> railroad. He was always uh, very proud of that. And you put in a brief time on the rail railroad. Yeah, I too. worked one summer in the Chicago Northwestern Yards in Kansas City as a section crewman. Well, tonight you're talking about railroads and river boats. Uh, which came first, the locomotive or the river boat? Yeah, well, the interesting thing about the early development of, of uh, railroads in the Red River Valley especially was that uh, it was not so much the idea of getting to North Dakota. There wasn't much here in North Dakota. It was getting to Winnipeg, and uh, goods were brought up the Mississippi to St. Paul, and you can't go beyond the falls of St. Anthony there. So then they were brought uh, by Red River Cart to the river, uh, to the Red River, and uh, went uh, downriver to Winnipeg, where there was a settlement that was started in the early 1800s. And in the early, in the 1850s, they began bringing goods through the United States to supply that um, settlement, the Selkirk settlements, because it was much cheaper than coming through Hudson Bay, and also the Hudson Bay route was closed part of the year due to ice. And so uh, the first railroads to reach North Dakota were the railroads uh, connecting to the Red River there uh, so that good they could bypass the carts then. And there's a brief period where the railroads and the riverboats have a kind of symbiotic relationship. Uh, and the railroad uh, brings goods to the river, but that only lasts, I think, about seven years, and then there's a direct rail line from St. Paul to Winnipeg, and that spells kind of the beginning of the end of the rail of the uh, river boats. So we're talking river. about when the railroad came to Fargo-Morehead, for example, in the early 1870s and for um, maybe into the early 1880s, there yeah. was uh-huh. this relationship between the railroads and the river boats. Yes. Uh, the Red River strikes me as a pretty dicey river to navigate. <laughs> Yeah, it is amazing that even though the the boats were relatively small compared to what you'd see on the Missouri or the uh, Mississippi or the Ohio, it's amazing that there ever were steamboats at all on that river. But uh, for several years, there were uh, uh, several operating. Um, and then after the, the real traffic uh, between the Twin Cities and the uh, and Winnipeg dies down. There is still some r- local uh, use of riverboats up and down the river. The same thing was true on the Missouri after the long-distance uh, 
movement of goods pretty much ended. Uh, there was still some local riverboat traffic. Well, as I recall in my railroad history, the, the Union Pacific was sort of Abraham Lincoln's uh, transcontinental magic piece, uh, and, the, and the federal government financed a piece of that. The Northern Pacific was a little different. That was, that was private capital, and it struggled a bit more. Uh, yeah. Well, well I, the Northern Pacific got uh, government land grants, ah, uh, yes. just like the UP and C- Central Pacific did. Uh, the Great Northern was built later without any federal land grants. I believe maybe they got some state land grants, but no federal land grants. I once asked uh, Donald Hoffsummer, that teaches at St. Cloud State over in Minnesota, is a noted uh, railroad historian, and a student had asked me in a class, I had said something about the Great Northern not receiving a land grant, and the student asked me why, and I said, well, I I really don't know. And it just happened that a few weeks later, I met Don Hoffsummer at a conference, and I asked him why they did, and he said, oh, it's very simple. The ones that the earlier ones had poisoned the well. There was so much corruption with some of the earlier lines that by the time the Great Northern was being built, uh, Congress uh, wanted no part of handing out uh, large land grants. Well, I was stunned as I was doing a little bit of research online to notice that the Northern Pacific, when it got its land grants, it amounted to millions of acres and uh, by one account a quarter of the state's real estate. Yeah, I think it was about a quarter of North Dakota. Um, The the original transcontinental, the first transcontinental, the Union Pacific and Central Pacific, originally got 10 square miles of public land for every mile of track. That was later increased to 20. Uh, The Northern Pacific got um, 20 square miles in the states they passed through and 40 square miles per mile of track in the territories. And, of course, Hmm. uh, North Dakota and Montana were territories in Idaho uh, I think the only states they built through were Minnesota and Washington. Uh, so they get a really big chunk of land in those uh, three territories. Well, the Northern Pacific and the Great Northern came out of Minnesota toward North Dakota. So how does the construction in Minnesota, the siting of the line there, affect North Dakota? Well, it, uh, at first they're kind of aiming for the Red River and uh, and then eventually also a direct line to um, uh, Winnipeg, but then once uh, when the Northern Pacific starts building across North Dakota, it is kind of interesting. You know, if you draw a line on the map, uh, two lines, uh, one just kind of straight west, uh, parallel to what would be I-94 today, and the other a kind of arc uh, from uh, the Williston area through uh, Minot, Grand Forks, and Fargo, uh, that pretty much uh, defines the early settlement in North Dakota mm-hmm. because that's where the Great Northern and the Northern Pacific are. Uh, it's no accident, you know, that the biggest towns in the state are all on that, uh, on either one, on one or the other of those two lines. Uh, students today, if you showed them that map, they'd say, oh, yeah, that's I-94 there in the south. Well, it's uh, it's also the original Northern Pacific route very close to it, you know, the Interstate doesn't vary far from it. Well, and the people who built these railroads uh, knew that uh, if they had the land grant, it didn't do them too much good if there weren't people there to settle on it and to use the train. And to yeah, they were very much involved in uh, boosterism, as it's called, uh, uh, trying to uh, 
boost settlement in the region because they had all this land to sell. They had borrowed tremendous amounts of money to build and then uh, have to hope that through sales and eventually through the rates and fares charged to uh, consumers that they can pay off what they've borrowed. So they had a um, vested interest in promoting settlement, um, not only of the land grants they um, own, but also uh, homesteaders. If homesteaders come or people who buy land directly from the government, uh, the railroad hopes that eventually they will be getting uh, a business out of them, that they'll be producing crops or livestock that have to be moved. So was the Northern Pacific uh, marketing itself in Norway? <laughs> uh, yeah, they were. Well, I'm, I'm not spe- specifically sure about Norway, but uh, throughout Europe, they had uh, very extensive operations, and uh, most of the major uh, transcontinentals did the same. Um, the... Uh, Russian Mennonites uh, were often uh, um, recruited by the railroads to come. The people who brought uh, hard red winter wheat to Kansas were recruited by the Santa Fe Railroad to come there. So there was uh, tremendous uh, business in advertising. There was also, uh, as is often typical, a kind of boosterism, a little bit of... uh, uh, you know, less than truthfulness about uh, they. They sometimes boasted that if you uh, if you believed everything the Northern Pacific wrote about the climate in North Dakota, you would think you were moving to the banana belt. You know, it was it wasn't cold here at all, and uh, so uh, little did they know we have the greatest temperature variation on the planet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they may have known that, but they just chose to ignore it. Okay. <laughs> How about the role of railroads in creating the grain handling infrastructure that we still partially have? Yeah, uh, they are very important. Uh, the, the railroads uh, often sold land to the companies that build those. Um, I haven't really researched a great deal about that, but one of the interesting things about that whole thing of the, the railroad moves the commodities to market, so they it is essential, but... Uh, Almost as soon as you have people settled, then the railroad becomes the enemy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Railroads in most towns, you know, there's only one line. Valley City is kind of unique that it's not a very big town, and yet there are two railroads that go through there. Uh, But most towns, you know, in the early days before trucks, uh, you either ship on our line or you don't ship. And... uh, so the railroads become the favorite target of almost every reform group. And there are, there are allegations that they're kind of undervaluing the wheat uh, as it's loaded on the train and then charging more when they get to Minneapolis. And uh, yeah, that mills. happened with the, uh, with the elevators. I know there's, uh, I, I think in, uh, I'm not, I don't remember for sure if this is in Elwin Robinson's uh, great uh, history in North Dakota, but he mentioned something about the... Um, one elevator in uh, it was either Duluth or the Twin Cities uh, bought a certain amount of number one wheat and sold a lot more, and that's kind of interesting. How did they do that? <laughs> Evidently, it wasn't graded number one when they bought it, but it was when they sold it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that probably. Uh caused a bit of that uh, prairie populism to yeah, heat up a uh-huh. bit. Uh, between 1900 and 1910, I saw this online too, North Dakota's population almost doubled. 
from 319,000 to 577,000. We think what's going on at the Bakken is a big deal now. That was that's stunning. Yes. Um a couple of years ago, uh there was a book called um Prairie Republic that deals primarily with South Dakota, but of course during a territorial era, uh South Dakota and North Dakota were all alike. This was John Locke that wrote it, uh, L A U C K. And he has some really interesting statistics in there about that great Dakota boom that, uh, you know, we think of the uh, the gold rush to California in 1849. That doesn't begin to compare to the number of settlers that came into the Dakotas during that, what is sometimes called the first Dakota boom. Um, so uh, it is a, a great movement of people. And again, the railroads, especially North Dakota, and South Dakota is not so much influenced by the railroads. They don't have a transcontinental going through there at that time. And But North Dakota, the railroads are very much involved in uh, recruiting those people. And uh, uh, like I said, they have an interest in getting those people there. Well, at that time, then, the passenger piece of the railroad must have been pretty robust. Uh, that's not the case anymore. Yeah, uh, yeah, passenger service was uh, uh, pretty big, of course, in those days. Um, it was. Uh, it's really amazing when you look back to early America how long it took to go, uh, you know, a considerable distance by uh, wagon or horse, and uh, railroads made a significant difference in that. Um, in early days, though, a lot of the states. Uh, started to raise concern about service. Uh, often, they, even with the uh, freight, the um, issue was not always so much the rates, because the rates were considerably cheaper than moving anything by wagon, but it was often service. And we still see the same things today, you know, with complaints about uh, elevators not being able to get the right number of cars at harvest season and things like that. Well, North Dakota used to have a, a lot more railroads than it has now. So what's happened? Yeah. Um, again, uh, Elwin Robinson, um, his book on North Dakota history, he uh, he lists several major themes in North Dakota history, and one is the too-much-too-soon mistake. And the railroads are a good example of that. We built too much railroad uh, and after World War One, it becomes clear that it is kind of overbuilt, and especially when trucks begin to uh, emerge that can uh, serve the small communities, then you start to have uh, kind of a retrenchment of the railroad uh, um, service, and a lot of those uh, branch lines are either abandoned or spun off to uh, regional railroads like we see today with the uh, Red River Valley in Western and uh, Dakota, uh, Missouri Valley in Western. And those small towns that used to have a spur that came to their elevator tend to go away. Yeah, sometimes, you know, if the railroad goes, the town eventually goes. Uh, Not always, but uh, that happened in many places. You still, you know, drive through North Dakota, you'll see places where there's an elevator, an old derelict elevator, but nothing else hardly there. You mentioned that uh, if you follow the old NP route through North Dakota, I-94 is kind of parallel to it. Uh, that sort of suggests that that major infrastructure improvement to the state uh, was uh, it was sort of the model for what followed 
where, yeah, where the power lines um, went and all that. Stephen Ambrose, in his book on the uh, the first Transcontinental Railroad, he makes that point that these guys who laid out these railroads uh, didn't have much in the way of the technology that surveyors do today. And yet today, when we build interstates, we often build them pretty close to the routes they've laid out on some of those early railroads. So they they did a very good job. Um, railroads are much more uh, the, the degree of gradient, the rise in uh, hills and things like that is much more uh, significant for the railroads than it is for cars and trucks. So they have to be very careful about where they're laid. River bottoms uh, land is often very good because it's level, but then when you come out of the river bottoms, like here in Jamestown, uh, it's a pretty significant climb as they come out of the uh, James River Valley back onto the prairie either either way, east or west. Well, that bridge in Valley City is certainly impressive. Yeah, uh, that just shows you how, you know, the extent that they would go to to avoid having to uh, do those grades. Now, have the changes in routing and service uh, affected the state, or has it all been made up by, you know, I've got a, I've got a road there now? I, I, I don't know. I think uh, you could make that argument that uh, trucking does provide uh, uh, enough alternative that um, the branch lines to every one of those little towns weren't really necessary. Uh, it, it is interesting, if you go back in early U.S. history, under Theodore Roosevelt, the uh, the Supreme Court struck down the Northern Securities Company, which was a holding company that merged three railroads that served this part of the country. Well, in 1971, I believe it was, those same three railroads merged to become Burlington Northern, and the Interstate Commerce Commission didn't have any complaint about it then, primarily, I think, because they believed that uh, trucking provided enough competition that it wasn't a problem if, if only one railroad controlled all of those. And at one lines. time in, our, in the state's history and in Minnesota's history, uh, one man certainly controlled an awful lot of track, and that was James J. Hill. Uh-huh. Yeah, he really was. Uh, you know, he got the nickname the Empire Builder, and uh, he really uh, was. Um, he uh, really considered the, the railroad not only, you know, a business that he made money from, but he, he seemed to have a lot of pride in it and um, uh, took a very personal interest in it beyond just the uh, wealth that he gained from it. Well, I am uh, used to work at and attended uh, Minnesota State Moorhead, and uh, that school was founded by Solomon Comstock, who was a landman for James J. Hill. Uh-huh. And he named a lot of towns for his boss. <laughs> yeah. And I think Jamestown might be one of them. I know uh, most, all the ra- most all the towns along the railroads were named by the uh, railroads. And then, in, uh, like in Bismarck, many of the streets are named for people who were uh, on the board of directors of the... Uh, Northern Pacific, uh, like Rossiter, some of those streets. Well, your lecture this evening is at 7 o'clock at the Barnes County Historical Society Museum. It's in conjunction with Valley City State University. Dr. Mark Joy speaking about railroads and riverboats. Thanks for joining us today. Okay, thank you very much. Been really appreciate it. We'll be back with more Hear It Now in just a moment.
support for this program is provided by the North Dakota Education Association, an organization of 8,000 school employees working to ensure great public schools for every child. Tonight's television lineup on Prairie Public starts with a This Old House Hour, then at 8 Central, Doc Martin, and at 9, The Aviators, followed at 9.30 by Bluegrass Underground. Tune in tonight on Prairie Public. And if you like the music in the background, that's The Road Has No End, played by Monroe Crossing. They will be appearing at the Fargo-Moorhead Community Theater. That's the stage in Fargo on Sunday at 3 o'clock. Their special guest will be tuckered out. So take uh, take it in if you want a little bluegrass. Their group is based in Minnesota, Monroe Crossing. Well, we're going to head back to our Jamestown asset base again and get a commentary from Bruce Berg. This time it is called Bad News. Years ago, a student teacher was in my charge who had many burdens added to her learning the classroom agenda. She was divorced, she had six children, and held a part-time job in the evenings that kept her busy about 18-7 every week. She learned quickly, however, and proved her teaching skills early on, and was a good person with the students and her subject. One day we got to talking about the news of the week, and she admitted that she did not watch newscasts and did not intend to start in the foreseeable future. She informed me that life was hard enough without adding the burdens of the world on her small, overworked frame. I think of Mary now and then, when I watch the news, and it is still clear why she chose not to make herself privy to the shock waves, the scandals, the brutalities, and so much of the nonsense we call the news. I remember Mary sought not to look like a cop-out from life, and she said, if the newscasters would just tell me what I could do about the violence and the fluff they put on the screen. Recently, a friend, an avid Republican, gave up the news after the last election. He was an addicted news junkie, but his view from the dumps encouraged him to give the broadcasts a rest for a while, and he's been on the cure for almost three months now. And yes, he's feeling better now, thank you. Watching and listening the news broadcast has been a lifetime occupation for most of us. And I must ask myself, how am I better off learning most of what is defined as news? I'm having trouble with that question. Now, there's a knee-jerk response at news time. I tune in, barely tolerate the commercials. I have to mute them. And at the end of the serious business of being informed, I wonder, did I need to know that? Shouldn't I have done something better than subject myself to the aches and pains of this world in this area? Yes, yes, now and then there is something enriching and something worthy of my time. But now and then can have a mighty big gap in that and space. This is Bruce Berg, Jamestown. Let's think about that for a moment. Have you heard about vitamin B12? Well, you will after the news. This is Here It Now. I'm Doug Hamilton. A well-balanced diet is supposed to provide us with protein, vitamins, and minerals, that stuff we need to thrive. However, some people don't eat right, or they may have a problem absorbing some nutrients. The result can be dangerous to their health. Sally Pacholik has written a book about the importance of vitamin B12, and her information may surprise you. Thanks for joining us, Sally. 
Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, your book is titled, Could It Be B12, An Epidemic of Misdiagnoses? We'll get to that piece. What is vitamin B12? B12 is one of the 13 vitamins that we need for health, but we also need it for life. What people don't realize is actually a B12 deficiency can be a true, it is a true medical disorder. We need it for our brain, our nervous system, the vascular system, and for our blood. So without B12, it'll cause very poor health, fall-related trauma, cognitive decline, mental illness, but it also can actually kill you. Well, you have some personal experience with this. You diagnosed yourself with this, didn't you? Yeah, back in 1985, I have, there's several different reasons a person can have a vitamin B12 deficiency. One of the reasons is an autoimmune uh, problem where the body attacks its own organ. So I have autoimmune pernicious anemia. But B12 deficiency can be caused by certain medications, any kind of gastrointestinal disorder, such as gastric bypass surgery for weight loss, cancers, bacterial overgrowth of the small um, bowel, Crohn's disease, celiac disease, uh, people who have genetic defects, they call them inborn errors of B12 metabolism. So there's many reasons a person can have a B12 deficiency. You have to have a healthy stomach, small intestine, liver, and pancreas to absorb it. So it's easy, easy, very easy to become deficient. And they report in the medical literature that around 48 million Americans have a B12 deficiency. That's one out of every six people. That's huge. It it certainly is. So why is it so often not diagnosed? Well, there is a knowledge deficit amongst physicians and other healthcare providers. They are not screening for it or really realizing the signs and symptoms of B12 deficiency and diagnosing other disorders and confusing it and prescribing other medications, which is dangerous as well as not cost-effective. We are wasting billions of healthcare dollars. For instance, a B12 deficiency, you need it for the neurotransmitters in the brain, and it commonly causes depression, suicidal ideations. So if a patient comes in and they're having depression, and a physician or a psychiatrist puts you on an antidepressant without investigating if B12 was a reason, that it, it makes no sense. And those, those patients can be placed on it for a year or two years, progressively going downhill. And the danger of that is you can cause permanent nerve damage. It causes neuropathy like diabetics get in their hands or feet. And it can progress to the point where a person can become disabled where they lose their balance and inability to walk. And there are malpractice cases where patients are confined to wheelchairs. So this is not, oh, it's a vitamin, it's good for you. I mean, it is. But there's a whole other side of this that people don't realize that's very injurious, very dangerous. We're causing a lot of disability, and we're causing poor outcomes in patients. Well, we screen for diabetes and other kind of common uh, issues with a large population. Uh, we don't screen for B12 deficiency? No, that, and that is my frustration, and that's why I felt compelled to, to write the book. I, the first edition was published in 2005 by Quill Driver Books, and we did the second edition in 2011 to update. And I, actually, I have a B12 awareness site that gives like the basic information we need to start screening people there is a woman that used to do films for pbs and national geographic that read our book back in 2009 the first edition and she actually made a 51 minute documentary on patients who have been injured you know a picture is worth a thousand words you can actually it's on our b12 awareness 
site that you can view this. And also it's on YouTube. It's had over 11,000 hits. It's only been on for a month. But it shows what is going on in America behind closed doors. And uh, you can get that information at your website. It's b12awareness.org. Yes. Uh, do I just take a pill? Do I just take my multivitamin? Is it in there? Well, B12 isn't a multivitamin, but if you have a deficiency, you need over 1,000 micrograms for you to, to correct that deficiency. And in a multivitamin, it's about 2.4 micrograms. Uh. So there's no way a multivitamin can correct it. Then people taking a B50 complex that has 50 micrograms, you think, well, whoa, I'm getting 833% of what I need. And that will not treat a B12 deficiency. Then there's the other part that's a problematic is that there are so many different companies out there that sell B12. They put a lot of binders and fillers. It's a very difficult vitamin to absorb. The two ways we recommend people who have a deficiency is either through an injection or underneath your tongue where sublingual B12, where it absorbs underneath your tongue, similar to how people who have chest pain that take nitroglycerin, it, it absorbs through the mucosa. Uh, Sally, we've got a caller from Bismarck who has a, he, he has a story about his B12 experience. Can we listen to that? Sure. Uh, Dennis, go ahead. Oh, hi, Doug. Uh, real interesting. Uh, I found out that B12 helps prevent leg cramps. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I've been taking 500 milligrams of B12 for quite some time. I haven't had a leg cramp since. Good. So that's, that's preventative. That's great. Nope. It does. We do know it causes like restless leg syndrome. So we start looking at physicians that prescribe Lyrica, other drugs. Again, they're not looking for B12 deficiency. And what we do advocate is before people run out and start taking B12, if you have signs and symptoms of B12 deficiency or have risk factors, you should get yourself tested to know, am I deficient? How deficient am I? Because that's going to help your physician maybe diagnose another problem that's causing the B12 deficiency, like why am I having B12 deficiency? Plus, you'll know if you need to have a series of injections to help or what your plan of action is going to be of, of what kind of B12, what dose you should be taking. And that's why it's important. If people run out and start taking B12 and then in two weeks they want to be tested, it's going to completely screw up your blood test and you're never going to know if you had a B12 deficiency. People so who aren't deficient by all means, they can take it high dose for prevention. So uh, there, there's a blood test that will determine if you're deficient? There are four tests out there, a serum B12, a methylmalonic acid, homocysteine, and transcobalamin-2. These are tests that physicians should know. Um, and it, you cannot always go by a serum B12. You have to have some of the backup tests in certain circumstances. Well, there are so many disorders with a possible underlying deficiency that it, it, it almost uh, staggers the, the imagination because it could be bipolar disorder, anemia, chronal renal failure, erectile dysfunction, infertility, chronic fatigue syndrome. It goes on and on. So uh, it's almost, it, it's such a wide range of disorders that might have a link. Uh, whose responsibility is it to to make that decision? Well, the physician and, and any kind of health care provider. I mean, this is a medical disorder. We need to re-educate the medical community. We need to have a standard of care change in America where we have clinical pathways where they should be following. They should be ruling this out, but they're not. Um, I've been researching this disorder for over 25 years. I work in emergency department, 
And this has been like a fight of mine of trying to get physicians to test patients. And I have over the years. It's, it's been like pulling teeth. But we frequently find B12 deficiency in the emergency department, and we should not. Why? Because those patients come to see us, you know, limited period. We've never met them before. And for us to find severe B12 deficiency in the emergency department tells us that their primary care doctor and their other specialists have failed to consider or rule it out and treat them. Because oh, they're on all these other drugs, but they're not on B12. I'm speaking with uh, Sally Papachuk, and she has written a book, Could It Be B12, An Epidemic of Misdiagnoses, with her husband, uh, Jeffrey Stewart. He's a doctor of osteopathy, I believe. Uh, have you raised awareness among your coworkers? Yes. <laughs> and it took the how I kind of got them interested in it after, you know, probably a good decade of professing and talking and telling. Obviously, it was going in one ear and out the other. I got a group of physicians that I work with interested only when I started telling them about malpractice cases. And they're like, what? What do you mean a malpractice case? What, B12? That's when I got them interested. When, when we, let's, let's explain this to your listeners. We need B12 for the human body for the myelin. The myelin is the fatty protective covering that surrounds our brain and all of our nerves. When you have a B12 deficiency, that myelin gets attacked and destroyed. So... It causes numerous neurologic signs and symptoms, such as numbness and tingling, paresthesias, tremor, dizziness, difficulty ambulating, restless legs, visual disturbances. Why? Because we, all our nerves innervate all of our organs, and we have peripheral vision. It causes forgetfulness, memory loss, dementia. This has been well known for over, for over 100 years. Three Americans won the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1934 for their life-saving discovery vitamin B12. We used to call it, and we, it's kind of this term, pernicious anemia, we've kept that term for historical purposes, but it's confusing today's physician because what we were taught in nursing school and what they're taught in medical school, to have a B12 deficiency, pernicious anemia, pernicious means deadly, you have to be severely anemic and have this macrocytosis, which means enlarged red blood cells. Both of those you don't need necessarily to have, and we know that the neurologic and psychiatric manifestations well precede the blood changes. And that's another reason why we're late at diagnosing B12 deficiency. And, and you do mention in your promotional correspondence the possibilities of psychosis and even violent behavior. You talked about the, the nerve effects. Yeah, there's hundreds of medical journals, there's thousands over the last century, that report mental illness, psychiatric manifestations caused by B12 deficiency. This is a well-known fact. In my book, I give over 300 medical references from their journals. So this is not something that I'm making up. Yes, I do see it on a daily practice, but the wealth of the book comes from the medical community, the information that people cite and write articles about. Back in the early 1900s, they used to call it megablastic madness because people went mad. We're not saying that every person who has a, a, every person who has mental illness has a B12 deficiency, but some of them do. And each person, they deserve to be properly diagnosed. So you'd have to rule that out before offering them an antipsychotic or an antidepressant, well, especially because you can injure that myelin. And then, you know, multiple sclerosis is a demyelinating disease. So is B12 deficiency. And in the film, that the documentary, you're going to see a person walking that their myelin was damaged, 
and this man's 51 years old, and he has to use forearm crutches to ambulate because his balance is completely destroyed. I want to get this question in because I caught it. Uh, you say that uh, nitrous oxide uh, 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 that you, dentists use sometimes as a pain-relieving gas for patients undergoing procedure, you say that inactivates B12? Yes, it does. Um, we also use it for medical procedures for ear, nose, and throat, neck, and back surgery. Why and is it dentists. still used? Well, it's okay if a person, you know, doesn't have a deficiency, but this is where the, the big problem is. We're not screening and diagnosing B12 deficiency. We're not even looking for it. People who are coming in with, with obvious signs and symptoms, we just kind of disregard it, and then we use nitrous oxide. The two can't mix because... If you have low B12 or a deficiency and you give a person nitrous oxide, you're going to wipe out the little B12 that they had and you can cause dangerous problems where we'll we'll start thinking these people are having strokes or something because the neurologic presentation comes on so swift, we don't really associate it with B12. And there are, again, a ton of articles in the medical literature and anesthesia journals talking about never giving nitrous oxide to a B12-deficient patient. Do you worry that some people might cling to a, like a B12 deficiency as the reason for their health issue when it may not be and, and then forego a treatment that would be more specific for their issue? No, but I think sometimes, you know, people have to realize B12 is part of their health problem, but you always have to look for other issues. For instance, if you have anemia, physicians get fixated on iron deficiency. They'll rule out iron but not B12. And even when we find people who are B12 deficient, we still need to check their iron, check their thyroid, you know, again. You just don't take, say, oh, B12 is, uh, it solves all your problems. Of course not, because there's numerous reasons for a, patient, for a person's health. If you don't sleep good, like some people who have sleep apnea that really need a sleep machine, that, if you don't get good sleep, you're not going to feel good. If you have an underlying thyroid disorder, you're not going to feel good. Or if your sugars are a little bit high. If you're obese and overweight. So, it, it's, it's important, but it doesn't solve everybody's problems, but it's a key piece that we are forgetting in America, and we are wasting billions of health care dollars. The elderly are really getting misdiagnosed because the signs and symptoms of normal aging are almost identical for a lot of signs and symptoms of B12 deficiency. I could walk into any nursing home and assisted living center and find you an older adult who has a B12 deficiency, and that is very sad, and that's, it's wrong. Uh, Sally Pachalik has written, Could It Be B12, An Epidemic of Misdiagnoses, with her husband, Dr. Jeffrey Stewart. And you can find out more information on a website. It's b12awareness.org. Thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. What's Happening is coming up. Arts programming on Prairie Public is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, a state agency developing, promoting, and supporting the arts in North Dakota. Well, Thursday's the day we ask what's happening, and we go online, we check newspapers, we go into that file we have of stuff that's coming up, and Ashley Thornburg and I chew it over and decide what we want to share with Hear It Now's audience. So, Ashley, what do you come up with? I 
want to go check out Monroe Crossing Bluegrass and Gospel Show with special guests tuckered out. These guys are members of the Minnesota Music Hall of Fame. This is a show coming up on Sunday, February 24th at 3 o'clock at the stage at Island Park. Tickets are $20. There is a quote on here that says, I dare someone to watch Monroe Crossing and not get happy. So it sounds like it will be a really fun show. Well, I've got one here. The Fargo-Moorhead Comic Con 3, the celebration of comics and popular culture. It's the 23rd, uh, that's Saturday, from 10 in the morning till 5 in the afternoon at the Doublewood Inn in Fargo. It features Joel Mojo Moen. He's a Marvel comic creator. And uh, Noel Scotch Anderson. Noel uh, actually is a local comic creator, but he has national syndication for some of his stuff. The doors open at 10. And again, they're open till 5 on Saturday at the Doublewood. Admission is 5 bucks for everyone 13 and over and $3 for 5 to 12. Under 5, free. <laughs> this one really caught my eye here. Beginning Bluegrass Gospel Weekend Retreat, February 22nd and 23rd. This is a weekend retreat designed for beginner and first-year bluesgrass musicians um, pl- looking for people who play the flat-picked guitar, five-string, Scruggs-style banjo, Earl Scruggs. He's so amazing. Isn't he? Mm-hmm. Bluegrass fiddle, bluegrass mandolin, upright bass, the list goes on and on. And um, this is a camp, and you can find out more by going to redwillowbiblecamp.org and check out a weekend of bluegrass musician playing. Okay, well, I'm going to check out some dance. The choreographer's showcase is this weekend at the Belmehu City Auditorium in Bismarck. In its seventh year, the Northern Plains Dance Choreographer's Showcase provides a venue for dancers, artists, musicians, and choreographers to work together to present an entirely unique performance. Those performances are Friday at 7.30 and Saturday at 2.30 and 7.30. Reserve ticket prices range from 8 to 25 bucks. Uh, you can go online as well. Uh, online ticket sales, though, end today. So that's the Choreographer's Showcase at Bell Mayhew City Auditorium in Bismarck this weekend. Becoming an Outdoors Woman Workshop. This is happening in Botano, specifically at Lake Metagoshi State Park this weekend, the 22nd through the 24th. This is designed primarily for women um, who have a little bit of an interest in learning some outdoor activities like hunting, fishing. There's also going to be dog sledding, some basic winter survival information, cross-country skiing. There's a little bit of fun like snowshoeing and skiing as well. Registration is um, open through the the North Dakota Game and Fish Department, and it usually costs uh, about fifty to sixty dollars, kind of depending on what they're serving, and that does include activities as well as food. Well, I better talk about this because we interviewed Andy Magnus, one of the organizers of the B Mobile's Extreme North Dakota Iceman Triathlon, presented by the Greater Grand Forks. Young Professionals at Lincoln Park Drive. That's Saturday. It starts at 9 in the morning. Ski, bike, run, and sled to the finish in the fourth annual B-Mobile's Extreme North Dakota Iceman Triathlon. Get uh, more information about the race and registration at endracing. That's endracing.com. I read about that one, too, and and it uh, it said it's the perfect balance of fun and brutality. (laughs) So if you're into both of those things at the same time, check Check that one out. The Upright Citizens Brigade Touring Company is presenting an evening of improv theater. These guys are very funny, and I expect uh, no different out of their roadshow. Admission is free. This is at uh, Minot State University at the Aleshire Theater. That is February 26th at 730. Improv comedy. 9 to 5. The Musical at NDSU's Festival Concert Hall. It starts uh, tonight, goes 
through Sunday. Tickets are $8 to 20 bucks. It's Thursday through Saturday. Performances are at 7.30. Sunday is at 2 o'clock. This is the musical version of the popular movie uh, and a hilarious story of friendship and revenge in the Rolodex era. That's 9 to 5, the <laughs> musical at NDSU this weekend. One of my favorite books, and I think this is true of many people who have been children, which probably is all of us, Where the Wild Things Are. This is the 50th anniversary of this book, and they're celebrating that Saturday, the 23rd at 1 o'clock at Main Street Books in Minot. There's going to be a monster party. So come dressed as a monster. Please, you know, you don't have to, but, you know, Max, how can you not want to dress like that? Again, it's Saturday the 23rd at 1 o'clock at Main Street Books in Minot. All right. Well, I'm going to give you my favorite now for this week, uh, and it is History Sundays with Steve Stark. Oh, I know we've mentioned so well it before, but this is really worth it. It's free and open to the public. It takes place at the M. Comp Center. The Historical Cultural Society of Clay County sponsors it. Uh, the time is from 1 to 2 o'clock on Sunday. It features Steve Stark in his marvelous interactive presentation, and this time the theme is Propellers and Pantaloons, Female Aviators. <laughs> All right. Well, my event of the week is the 52nd annual Red River Valley Home and Garden Show. This is a huge event all weekend long at the Fargo Dome. They're welcoming Jill Everman, a chef and a season seven finalist on the next Food Network star, and Gerilyn Thomas, who is a professional organizer. Friday the 22nd from 3 to 9 p.m., Saturday from 9 to 6, and Sunday from 11 to 5. Admission is $8. It's kind of a one-stop shopping for all of your springtime and, and summer home and garden activities. Well, I've been there in previous years. It's a lot of eye candy. <laughs> so, it is. It's easy to spend the whole day there. And it's inside, so it's a little warm. Ah, we enjoy that. That's what's happening. Support for this program is provided by Basin Electric Power Cooperative of Bismarck, producing reliable electricity. Basin Electric operates generation stations in North Dakota, South Dakota, and Wyoming, including wind farms in North and South Dakota. This is Dakota Datebook for February 21st. Granville, North Dakota recorded an 83-degree rise in temperature on this date in 1918, one of the most extreme temperature changes ever recorded. In only 12 hours, the temperature climbed from 33 degrees Fahrenheit below zero to 50 degrees above. The 83-degree swing was only one example of extreme temperature changes caused by a meteorological phenomenon known as Chinook winds. Chinook winds occur when eastern moving winds bump up against the Rocky Mountains. The winds lose moisture during the impact, usually resulting in snowfall on the western side of the mountain range. The lighter air then begins to move up and over the mountains and will begin to descend rapidly down the eastern slope, heating up as they descend due to a process known as adiabatic heating. Once the fast-moving air reaches the arid central plains, it spreads out into a strong, warm wind with the ability to rapidly vanquish winter temperatures and melt deep snowpack. French explorers first noticed the phenomenon in the early 19th century and named the winds after the northwestern Chinook tribe. Ironically, the word Chinook literally translates to snow eaters. 
First used to describe the Native American tribe that would eat snow during the winter months, it also characterizes the warm Chinook wind that melts snow and ice as it moves east across the plains. Although southern Alberta remains the most susceptible to the Rocky Mountain Chinooks, the northern plains of Montana, Wyoming, and north and south Dakota are also affected by these warm air masses. In 1943, the temperature in Spearfish, South Dakota, rose 45 degrees in just two minutes, only to drop 58 degrees in 27 minutes a few hours later. During Chinook events, winds can reach up to 140 miles per hour, the same force experienced during a level 4 hurricane. And the air becomes so dry that it's often possible to see static electricity in the air. Chinooks are not confined to North America, the same weather pattern occurs under different names around the globe. In Poland, they're referred to as Halniwater. In Argentina, as Zonda Winds. Whatever their name, most North Dakotans welcome the warm respites they sometimes offer during the cold winter months. Today's Dakota Date Book was written by Jamie Job. I'm Errol Pepcorn. Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota with funding from the North Dakota Humanities Council. Friday on Hear It Now, Youth Court is an alternative to formal court proceedings for juveniles. As it turns out, it's also an opportunity for teen volunteers. We'll have a couple of folks from Lutheran Social Services, which oversees the program, talk to us about Youth Court on Friday. And News Director Dave Thompson will be here to discuss the week's news, as he is every Friday, and it's always illuminating. And we'll be off to the movies with Matt O'Lean, who reviews Amour and also gives us a quick Oscar preview. And again, we're going to try to stump the guy, too. So tune in to Hear It Now, tomorrow at 3 Central, 2 Mountain. In the meantime... Have a great evening.